the optimal life. Jeremy, welcome. How are you? Uh, very good. How are you doing? Uh, doing fine. Doing fine. So, science researcher and writer on the origins of life and human nature and total jerks. This is a yes. this is a very peculiar biography. So, tell us tell us before we get into it all exactly who you are and what you do. Well, I would never claim exactly, but I'll tell you my best guess at who I am. Okay. Um, and, and how I got here. Um, uh, I've had a lucky life. Um, yeah, I consider it dumb luck, but um, I inherited some money early on. Um, it made me feel pretty guilty. I ended up going into um, environmental activism and the kind of work that you know, trying to trying to save the world. Um, even lived for seven years on the world's largest hippie commune um, in Tennessee, um, which was out to save the world. We were not your usual lazy or or loose hippie commune. We were really trying hard to make things work. And part of that commune life was, for example, me spending two and a half years in Guatemala doing water projects in rural villages. Um, came out of that, uh, went into, uh, founded a national lobbying organization on environmental issues, primarily climate change, but also nuclear war, um, and uh, ended up in the corporate world doing uh, uh, public relations for companies like Ben and Jerry's and The Body Shop, uh, not public relations, public affairs, the, uh, the, you know, the, the social activism of those organizations. Finished that with a master's in public policy from UC Berkeley, basically trying to figure out how to uh, uh, make, make policy work better for the world and its sustainability. Um, and I found that education kind of sobering and, it, and um, uh, about how difficult it is to make changes in the world and, and kind of turned my attention more to the human condition um, and uh, in its uh, from its origins so I got interested in evolutionary theory and from there ended up meeting a Harvard neuroscientist and biological anthropologist um, who I then uh, got to have on my PhD committee where I studied something that's got a fancy name, but it's actually quite intuitive when you think about it. It's called evolutionary epistemology. Epistemology is basically how do we shop among interpretations? Uh, how, do we, how do we decide how to respond in different situations? Uh, so it's a branch of philosophy, epistemology. It's basically the philosophy of knowledge, knowing what to do. Um, and evolutionary epistemology is just that in the context where organisms are all dealing with that challenge. They're not dealing with it conceptually, conceptually the way humans are, um, but they're but they're they still have to figure out what to do in order to survive. Um, working with this Harvard uh, um, neuroscientist and biological anthropologist. Um, uh, was a pleasure, and he ended up moving to Berkeley shortly after my PhD was done. So we've been working together for 25 years. He had just finished, when I met him, he had just finished writing a book on the evolution and nature of the symbolic species. That is an organism that uses language, uses symbols. Symbols are a different kind of, of way of interpreting things. So he had been really studying the origins of language um, and had just turned his attention to an even bigger question, um, which was the origins of trying. Organisms try to stay alive. And inanimate things, stars or computers or machines or watches or tables, they're not trying to do anything chemicals, molecules, they're not trying to do anything. So what is trying and how did it start is his, was his big research question. Well, I've been working with him on that one for 25 years. Um, and in the meantime, I never really stopped thinking about uh, how to make the world work better for more of us. Um, and, uh, and so I ended up, so I, so I, I never intended to be a writer, but I was just there was such a rich um, mother load of ideas that came to me out of all of this work, especially getting to work with someone who was as encyclopedic as this guy was. Terence Deacon is his name. I mean, the guy the guy had studied he had, he had done his undergrad degree where he basically took every science and philosophy course in the school. Um, it was a it was a small rural private school and uh, out in rural Washington. And someone said, look, if you're going to stay here for seven years and take all these courses, you might as well get a PhD. So he got his PhD from Harvard and then went on uh, to teach at Harvard and now at Berkeley. 
So, um, so it's been a pleasure to get to work with him. For example, after uh, after our podcast interview, he and I are going to get together for a meeting. We do that maybe four times a week. But right, I ended up doing a whole lot of writing. Um, mostly accessible. I'm, I'm, I, I, this is a second career for me, this whole academic thing. And so while I write some academic stuff, I'm much more interested in writing for everyday decision-making, everyday uh, practicalities, that sort of thing. So I've, I've written about 950 articles for Psychology Today, um, and, uh, and I generally try to write to make the advanced ideas uh, more accessible. In the meantime, my interest in uh, social change turned my attention to what I now call psychoproctology. Psychoproctology is the study of buttheads. Um, and a core question is, what distinguishes them? What is a butthead since they can't just be whoever I happen to buttheads with? You know, that's people's most uh, current uh, answer to that, you know, about it is someone who I find frustrating, yeah. basically, the answer. And I'm saying, no, I got, I'm looking for something more objective than that. What actually distinguishes them? So, um, and then how do you stop them without becoming one? How do you stop and prevent them? from coming into existence? How do you keep people from becoming buttheads? It's a, it's a different approach to moral questions because most people think that the question is, what should everybody do? And I'm saying, no, what should everybody don't? What is, you do whatever. You know, apparently, you look around the world, there's plenty of ways that people live and they're all perfectly viable, except, um, so, and, and we need that kind of diversity. We learn from each other's different approaches to life uh, all around the world. But don't be a butthead. So, that, so the question is how to spot and stop buttheads. Well, how do you how do you diagnose, treat, and prevent a holery? Basically, is what it comes down to. And it's a very serious topic. I think it's the most important question in all morality. I don't think we're going to survive if we can't figure out better ways to um, inoculate societies against buttheadedness. And I don't think a buttheadedness is exclusive to any belief system. I think that's a distraction. I don't actually think that buttheads really have beliefs. They, uh, it's more of a habit. But anyway, looking back at all of this, I realized, damn, I'm, I, I do cradle-to-grave research. From the cradle at the origins of life to our grave situation today. Um, and um, and that's just what I ended up doing. And I, and I have a great deal of fun with it. And then in the evenings, I'm a, I'm a bass player and singer in funk soul world jazz bands wow so so um it's a n nice rich life uh a lucky life as well, I said good for you so let me ask you that, that describes what i ended up being let, let me ask you you mentioned at the beginning that you when you inherited this sum of money it made yeah. you it made you feel guilty elaborate on that a little bit what what was the yeah, no, i think it's actually a really important point i think that we so my dad had gone into his father's business, and I think he, um, and and uh, his father was, um, he used to say, you never want to give a 16-year-old an Eldorado Cadillac. Um, and that was a way that he, my dad felt kind of kept down by my grandfather a bit. Even late in life, he almost had an adolescent uh, rebellion against his dad at age 40. And it was a very public thing because my dad was the president of the company and my grandfather was the CEO of the company. It was Midas Mufflers, that company. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and so my dad had decided to give his kids money at 16. So I got, I got more money than I knew what to do with. And it was a kind of vocational derailment. It, um, Jeremy, because, you know, was it, was it life? You're trying to figure out what you're going to do to make a living and suddenly they tell you, here's a lifetime supply of money. Um, make a living if you want. So... And, and I was coming up in the in the counterculture of the 1960s when when we were paying a lot of attention to inequality, and not all my relatives uh, and brothers had this experience, but I ended up feeling really unentitled to what I had been granted. Um, right. So when I joined the commune, I actually I I gave away all the money I had at the time, and lucky for me, even after seven years at the commune. There was still some money coming to me, but um, I am very attentive to the ways in which people cope with uh, inequality, um, and um, I think there are a few different natural responses or typical responses to inheritance, um, and one of them gets played out at the national level these days 
which is that very rich people will often feel, will often make up a story about how God or the universe or fate chose them to be the ones because somehow they deserve it. That is, they can make up a story about how they deserve it. I, um, you know, in some kind of cosmological sense, some grand sense. And so it's their duty to protect it and maintain it, and everybody who doesn't have as much as they do is unworthy by some cosmic standard. Uh, I think that's a really dangerous approach to it. And I know other people who just who, who somehow manage to get over the question. You know, I, I end up knowing a fair number of inheritors, um, and they just get over the question and they enjoy their lives um, without feeling the burdens that I did, nor uh, employing a an absurd argument like fate chose them because they're special um, to be the ones who are entitled to the, to the wealth. Um, How did you manage your money at 16? Go ahead. How did you manage that at 16 years old? Who was who was taking care of your funds and assets and all that? Um, that, it was, that was relatively simple. I mean, um, you know, I had my dad's guidance and I had money managers. I've had money managers for most of my life. I don't have, I don't have the fire in the belly that some people have to go... Uh, to make their assets grow. That is, and also I'm not a very, um, uh, I'm interested in precise generalities and they're in, in, in finance. If you, if you want to try to beat a market, you're paying attention to precise details. And I'm not that kind of guy, it turns out. Um, I mean, I could be maybe if I needed to be, but I'm much more interested. I ended up much more philosophical. So no, I just, I'll end up hiring, uh, money managers and, um, you know, I've gotten in on the ground floor of a, a whole lot of sinkholes, um, and I've also done well. I mean, so just like any investor, you know, I've got the money, the, investing the money has not been a big issue. But this is, I mean, your program's about extraordinary extraordinary people or extraordinary circumstances anyway, and this, this aspect of my circumstance is just bizarre. Uh, never once in my life, not on the commune, not elsewhere, have I worried about how I was going to pay bills. Well, that's very so, unique. So the, Most yeah, people so have the, to feed. The latitude it gave me is just bizarre. It's just, it, it's foreign to most lives. Did um, it make you happy? What's that? Did, the, did having this big sum of money in your life all of a sudden make you happy? No, uh, no. Uh, that, and that's kind of my point here. The, having that money... Um, did not make me happy, and therefore I didn't feel like I could do just anything. It made me anxious. Um, obviously, I uh, it, it's a little bit like if you're born gorgeous. If you're, a, let's say, if you're a woman and you're born gorgeous, and you don't know, uh, it, it, as a result, you don't really know um, who who likes you because of your looks and who likes you because of your person. Uh, you, you know, you want to be liked for what 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 you value, but you but you got this big distraction uh, in front of you. Well, I had mine behind me; it was in my wallet, but I couldn't tell who liked me because of the money and who who you know who liked me because of myself. And it really was until about age thirty seven, and by that time, my dad had died, so he died young of cancer. Um, but uh, so the, there was no one else who the money obviously belonged to, and I did ask him shortly before his death why he gave it to me because this was a, he was a he was he was on the same side of the, of these issues as I was. He was he was, trying, he was working towards in, uh, towards justice and equality. He worked with Saul Alinsky and Ralph Nader and Jesse Jackson and the Chicago Seven. I mean, even while running a large corporation, he was doing all that stuff. So we were on the same page. And I asked him why he gave it to me. He said, in this world, money goes to those people who money passes through. That is, if you're doing, if you work in finance, you can make a lot of money. He said the real useful work in the world doesn't pay well. And that was all he said about it. And um, so... It, there was a sense of obligation for me. I think I probably shared the sense of obligation with him more than my brothers did. They were okay taking the money and doing whatever, but um, whatever they, their hearts desired. But I felt obligated. I felt like I couldn't really rationalize having this money unless I was as important to social justice as, let's say, Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, so there was, a, there was a way in which those, that whole first career of social activism um, which I'm grateful for. I, I mean, I, I learned a lot, and I'm still basically on the same campaign, only going at it from a different angle. Um, but but the but all of that whole first career 
I felt like I had to do that sort of stuff. I couldn't become a CPA. I couldn't become someone in finance. I had to do something to justify having gotten this money. And then around 37, 40, around that age, going through a, a good midlife crisis, in part realizing in, through the public policy school just how hard it is to make social change, um, I got around to the question, okay, well, what am I good for? This, Buckminster Fuller was important to me at the time. He was the guy who said, um, what were you about to do before they told you you had to make a living? He, he just posed that as a rhetorical question or as, as an open question. And, I, and that was sort of the question that came to me at 37. And I ended up finding things that I'm, I'm, I'm well suited to. I have the appetite and the aptitude and the opportunity to, to work on the things I work on. And, and that's why the, the life is lucky. Not only do I have freedom, but I have a whole lot of things I like to do uh, with that freedom that feel productive. And also the commune was good this way. It was basically boot camp for me. I was a soft, uh, you know, a soft kid, soft upper middle class kid. Um, and I go to this commune and I become a, a firefighter, I become a carpenter, a plumber, did that work in Guatemala uh, where I was doing water projects as an engineer of water projects. Was, it, it grounded me and also we worked hard all day long. It was not, like I say, it wasn't your, your slouchy hippie commune. We, uh, uh, we worked all day, you know, most days. And that was good during my formative years to spend that time. So I've got a kind of intense work ethic, but it's but it's got to be from my own, uh, you know, there's a saying, uh, the self-employed have an idiot for a boss. So I have to kind of keep, uh, I have to keep control over myself. I have to make sure that my days feel productive to me. And so that's, that's been a great motivator for me. Do you ever look back and think to yourself how different your path may have been and what you would have done for a living had you not been granted that, that sum of money at a young age? Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think I think it tortured my dad. See, my dad, he also was built for other things. But he was living in a time and in a culture where you went into your father's business. So there was a part, there was a way in which I think he was trying to manifest through his kids an alternative to his approach. For example, he used to tell us that we were not going to be allowed to go into his business unless we were 35 and failures, he said. It's a great line. He was, a, he was, yeah. a, he was actually a very humorous guy. Um, and uh, irreverent and ironic and all of that. So, um, uh, yes, I have thought about whether, what, whether I could have made it. See, that was the stigma until 37. Mm. Was that I, you know, and it would, this would be the same as, let's say, if you were born beautiful, if you were born sexy, whatever. You, I was. Would I have made it if I was not granted this luck early on? Um, that's a question. I think it's good to be haunted by that question a bit. Um, and I honestly don't. I, I, I'm not in a position to, to say. I'm not the one that gets to say that I would have made it. People say, no, you'd have made it. You're, 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 you're smart and you're articulate and all that. Um and I probably would have, but it's also uh, a life I didn't end up having. Um, and and yeah. since I don't regret it, since I feel like I'm in a groove, not a rut, I don't do a lot of um, uh, practical if-onlys. Um, sure. I, sure. I mean, the question of what went wrong with someone, those questions, you get over them when things start to feel like they're going right. You know, a lot of psychotherapy, I did a lot of psychotherapy. In fact, I did from an early age. I, at age eight, I went into psychoanalysis. Four days a week on the couch, Freudian analysis. It was just, this has been a wild life. I mean, wildly exotic is what I mean. Was or, your weird or different from was, most people's lives. Was your father but, present in your childhood? Was he present or was he so busy with running this multinational oh, company? He, no, he was, he was an interesting cat. Um, uh, it wasn't just that he was running the business. He was practicing piano four hours a day, concert piano, because he had wished that he had become a concert pianist. He had, we had in our house on the south side of Chicago, we had three aviaries filled with orchids he grew and finches he, he raised, uh, finches and hummingbirds on the south side of Chicago. Um, he, he was a Shakespeare scholar. He was a music theory, uh, what, the, what they call harmony. He studied harmony. Um, he, he, so he was a, 
I mean, there's even an article about him as a as a as a kid. He was there was an article I've got from some very old newspaper about him as a boy of parts, which is a old phrase you barely hear anymore. About basically um, a Renaissance man. He did lots of different things. Um, so. Uh, so he was busy. Yeah, he the, was very busy. So he, as and yes, up. he was around. He was. He was. Around. He was. He was present. Um, it was. I have one brother who doesn't think we had a good childhood. I think we had a perfectly fine one. Yeah, my dad was a piece of work. Um, but um, and I was intimidated by him because I was kind of also slow, slow waiting up to the world. I was. I was a late bloomer. Um, uh, what does that mean? But, what does that mean? Slow but, waking up to the world, Jeremy. What's that? What, is, what does that what's mean? That? You were slow waking up to the world. What, what is that? Oh, I was. I was a late bloomer. I would. Um, uh, I. I mean, I also have a recording of him mentioning that I'm the runt of the family, and he kind of meant it. Kind of didn't. We had a, it. It was a fine relationship, and and um, like all family situations, it was a mixed bag. Um, but um, overall, no, they were very present for us, um, and um, almost in a way, his presence in my life um, was uh, was formidable. It felt it felt I felt him looming in my life a lot, and then uh, bless his heart, he died at fifty nine of cancer. My my mother dies at fifty nine of a different cancer two oh, yeah. years later, so in my early 30s my parents are gone mm. and there is you know Freud said you never really grow up until your parents die um, right. the, the harsh words I wish those guys I mean he'd be 95 this year um, I, I, I so wish them a longer life in this, and at the same time um, there was a way in which I could come into my own once he was not looming as formidably as he had during mm. those early years Wow! Um, wow! Yeah, wow. I got you know, it, and part of that was I could I could expand to occupy some of the territory that he occupied so confidently. Yeah, I see that. I mean, for most of my childhood, I didn't feel like I could I could for me to encroach on his territory would mean that I was you know you could call it Oedipal, you could call it whatever. It's it's it, it's just the um, you know I didn't want to compete with him. I understand that. I, I understand. Do you yeah. like animals? Jeremy, do you, well, do you like yeah, do, do you like animals? I do, but not the way I did. So when I was young, I um, I was obsessed with animals, and so obsessed with them that my dad bought me on the south side of Chicago. Didn't buy me; borrowed from a friend a pet cow. So at age, I think what would I have been? I would have been age twelve. I was living on the south side. This is very this is an urban area. And I had a pet cow, and I would take this cow on walks down the street. Um, it was it was delightful. These days, I, I love animals, but I, I find myself um, much more focused on biology and evolution than I am on particular animals. For example, I don't have a pet. Right. Um, but yeah, part it just of that seems... is also that I have rounded down to minimal obligations. Mm. That yeah. is, I now trust myself to be productive without having a bunch of encumbrances yes. so my days are really free yeah um, it's just interesting and, to and, me because and i don't have to worry about having an idiot for a boss i mean i'm i could be an idiot for a boss but but at least i'm productive in the in the in the arenas i'm i'm in i you know, i have friends who kind of marvel at how much i get done and i have to remind them no it's I, i'm a dude who's got the day free you know i'm i'm, I'm someone who i don't have to worry about paying bills you that's know? beautiful don't that's compare beautiful. me with a completely different life that's beautiful um, jeremy let me ask you though because it really it, it really is resonating with me it seems like your father had a tremendous impact on who you are and who you've become in your life i mean you talk about the wisdom and the advice he gave you about how most jobs that pay well are not the best jobs in the world to have and then of course you go into doing this public service for a vast majority of your adulthood you talk about the animals he loved the animals and, and obviously you were obsessed with them as you were younger maybe not as much anymore uh, you talk about the music and, and his music and his pianist uh, aspirations yeah. and then yeah. and then what you're doing now you said you're, you're a part-time musician on during the week it just there seems to be a lot of correlate direct correlation between oh, your father yeah. and you yes and and so and um so i was i have been 
always orbiting under the influences that he was. And that means orbiting away from and orbiting towards. So of the four boys, he had four boys and no girls. And uh, I have three brothers. Um, it was very competitive. And I was the first to rebel against the competition, to basically demand that I get sent away from the family to go to a boarding school, which was uh, another interesting aspect of the story. After seven years of very strict religious school, they allowed me to go to a school, uh, you know, a thousand miles away where you, where classes were not compulsory. I didn't attend school. I didn't have a class from age seven to nine. I mean, uh, sorry, from grade seven to nine. I did not attend classes. I went to a free school. So I was busy rebelling against my father. At one point, I call him a bald gorilla, and he calls me a vile toad. Um, so we had fights, and then I ended up circling back into his orbit. But I think the thing that I've most inherited from his, him was his sense of irony. Mm. He would say these just, he was, he was humorous. He would say things like, I haven't lived my life in vain for nothing. Which is, right. I just love lines like that. <laughs> so a lot of my writing and research these days has to do with irony about the cooperative, comp uh, competitive uh, ambivalence of all of us. The kind of stuff you see in sitcoms where someone uh, acts like they're one with someone else, like they're really united with them, and then they step out and make a snarky comment about them as an aside. All of that, I think, ends up being an appropriate way to live. That is where you where you see that you're struggling to you're trying you're, you don't know the answer you don't have a formula um, you know you look at most of the people who claim to have formulas they're fairly humorless um, you know the the Bible is for example famously lacking in humor there's no humor in that book right. so the, the the formulaic ways of living what's the alternative to that well there's the cynical way of living the cynical hypocritical way but i think irony is the better alternative and no i definitely got that from him i was raised in i was steeped in irony growing up um and and loved that about it and end up resonating with that in later life i'm now 65 so yeah. yes I, I i carry that forward yeah so i and i and again i'm, I'm getting to this because I'm trying to understand maybe the influence that you had that that what leads somebody to want to understand what makes somebody an asshole, which is one of your big practices. This is what you focus on. Yeah. This is one of your things. You know what 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 do you think caused that? And then let's let's talk a little bit about why people are that way. Uh, uh great. Yeah. So that's that's been. Um, so I just I, I've got a podcast out now, of, which is basically me reading a whole accessible book I wrote on the subject and it's called What's Up With A-Holes um, Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners It's uh, it's been great to hear from people who have no training in psychology and all that, that they totally understood the book uh, people who've read it um, uh, there are so I have I have three children and one of them had um, difficulties uh you could say mental disabilities that made him that made people not sympathetic around him made him, the people think that he was an ale you know there are there you know autism or mental retardation they generally engender sympathy in people but there are other kinds of mental disorders that do not manifest the, that kind of response people end up thinking wow what a jerk um so i'm sure that was part of the motivation and I don't talk about it much because he's my son, I want to be respectful of him but at the same time, you know, respectful of his privacy, still I have to kind of acknowledge that that was he was a muse for that work and I was partly probably because I was trying to figure out um, you know, is he is he handicapped or indulgent because he had a handicap that made him look indulgent and if you're the father of someone like that uh, your responsibility is to accommodate him if he's handicapped and um, and and uh, uh, um, show him the way or constrain him if he's indulgent. Uh, so they're kind of opposite responses. I'm very clear that that's why I ended up getting this PhD in, in evolutionary epistemology. I got really interested in how folks make decisions and especially ones like that where it's ambiguous what you're dealing with and what you would do in... in depending on what you're dealing with, you do opposite things. So that's been an interest to me for a long time. In the meantime, um, 
I'm paying attention, you know, from all that social activism work, I'm paying attention to uh, what makes things go wrong in the world. And um, so that's how it became uh, a question for me. About 25 years ago, I, I landed on this question, what is a butthead since it can't just be whoever you happen to butt heads with? Um, my, my basic answer comes down to this, and it's, and it's grounded in the origins of life work. All organisms have to interact selectively with their environments. We take in food, but not poison. We all, or we die. So we have to be. We have to be good at deciding what to take in, what not to. Now, humans are doing that in the realm of language, which means that we will take in ideas that feel like they're, you know, they 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 maintain our mojo, our our sense of self confidence, and we keep out ideas that disappoint our 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 self-confidence or, or damage our self-confidence. So that's a little bit like taking in food, not poison, and we have a name for it. It's called confirmation bias. Well, most people, normal people, treat confirmation, their confirmation bias as a problem that they have to manage, that they have to watch out and sometimes take in disappointing or critical feedback and learn from it. Um, buttheads treat confirmation bias as the solution to all their problems. If anything is challenging or disappointing to them, they have a way to reject it, ignore it, um, deflect it, uh, project it onto whoever's accusing them. It's basically, I know you are, but what am I? And a bunch of other simple formulas by which you can basically play God, uh, pretending that you are, you know everything, uh, you're always virtuous, whatever. Um, and you can do that dressed up in whatever cause. It doesn't matter. It could be left, right, religious, atheist, philosophical, whatever. It does, that, that's really secondary. Secondary. It's not what you. It's not what you claim to believe, but how you strut it. You strut it as though it's the final formula, like you've got, it, like you've got it all figured out. And you can do this, you know, locally with a few people. You can do it part time. You know, there's a bunch of trolls who uh, are perfectly decent people during the day, and then they become tough jerks at night for sport. Um, Why? Uh, Why do they do that? What's that? What's causing somebody to do that? Why are they going to that alter well, ego at so night? Here's the thing: is it? I think it's more a matter of falling into it as an easier way to live. Playing God is way easier than being human. Um, and you can fall into it really easily. You, you know, you, you just learn a few quick tricks for deflecting all, um, all challenges. Um, you learn how to never have to learn again. Um, and so my, by the end of the book, I end up calling uh, it's, uh, so the, the name Butthead or any of the other variations on that are they're loose. They don't. They're they're not really great diagnostic terms. Nor nor would I argue are terms like narcissist. I think narcissist implies that these guys are they they adore themselves or are infatuated with themselves. I don't actually think that's going on for a lot of them. I mean, I think it's much more of a habit. So by the end of the book, I've de I've defined. I've come up with a term that that describes what I think is going on with them, and I call them Trump bots. Now. The obvious connection is to Donald Trump, and I, I think he's a perfect, crystalline, idealized Trump bot. And I would say that even if he pandered to the left instead of the right, I don't think it's got anything to do with what they believe. I don't actually think that buttheads have beliefs. Um, they act like they have beliefs, but if you watch their behavior, which is how you can tell what someone really believes, no, they don't. It's clear they don't have these beliefs. Uh, they just use beliefs as weapons. But why do I choose the term Trump bot? Well, it's it's a robotic habit. It's just a habit um, that works. And uh, and so this is one of the amazing things about us. We, we we talk as though we're all paying attention to what our words mean. I think that's kind of secondary for us. If you stumble on a way of saying something that gets you what you want, you won't forget that. You'll use it. It'll become a habit. It beca and if it works reliably, you'll use it a lot. So um, I don't. I think it's actually closer to animal braying what they're doing. But why do I choose the word Trump? Because Trump means two things. It means fake, as in trumped up. And it means trump card. That is, it beats all other things. So the ideal that any human would want would be perfect freedom to do whatever the hell they want and perfect um, triumph no matter what they do. That's obviously what we would want. We want perfect freedom and perfect safety atop all the other alternatives. This would be the alternative to doubt, 
or self-doubt would just be to say I can do anything I want by faking that it's a wild card it's basically a wild card I can do anything I want and whatever I do is always the best that's the trump card so it's a wild card trump card formula and it's super easy to play it as long as you are a, a decent actor who can you know can get all theatrical about whatever you claim to believe uh, you can fake it um, and convincingly and and as long as you can get away with it you'll just keep on doing it so trump bot is the term it's basically fake trump cards played robotically that's but, my that's my current guess about what's going on with them are they narcissists uh, maybe, but I don't think that I don't even think they're they're paying attention to who they are. They're they're not self aware. They're kind of um, hell, uh, headless swellheads, um, and anybody can fall into this. I've got Buddhist friends who are like this. I've got New Age leftist friends like this. You know, it's not it's not about what you believe. It's how you strut it. But, but and what's if you causing get the habit them? of strutting it? It works. What, You'll keep doing it. What's the fuel for their fire? What is it? Just just to feel better about themselves? What's the main cause for this type of behavior? Well, so. So this is this does tie into the origins of life work. All organisms are struggling to regenerate themselves. It's a lifelong hustle. It doesn't just happen at the level of uh, thought and emotions. It's going on physiologically. We are all running to stay in place. For example, today I will generate 240 billion new cells. An impressive number. I have no idea how I do it. I don't feel myself doing it. I don't have to think about it, but I'm doing that. So now you put that in the realm of of, of language-bearing organisms or language-using organisms, and we've got all sorts of conceptual challenges. We are we humans would be an extremely anxious species. Um, if you just compare what you could worry about before going to bed at night to what your dog could worry about, just no contest. We, we've got way more real and imaginary threats and missed opportunities to worry about. Um, we can regret, we can foresee our own deaths. We are an anxious species, and we are also tooled up through language to be able to deny or rationalize ignoring what makes us anxious. So the fuel for it, from my perspective, is simply that. Uh, there are lots of animal predators and parasites, but there are no buttheads. Butthead is a human thing, and it comes, I think, from having language. What, uh, what's the? Uh... You know, if you if you cross the, um, uh, what do you get when you cross uh, emotions with language? You get language that justifies whatever your emotions are drawing you to. So that would be a, it would be a standard temptation for humans, and I would argue for any symbolic species anywhere in the universe, any intelligent life form. That is a language-using life form. That's what we mean by intelligent life. Would have the same problem. But these people, we would, Jeremy, we that, would cause big problems. Uh, we get very anxious, and we would deny the problem. These people, Jeremy, that continue to live in the state of what I'll call denial, based upon the way that you're explaining it, um, and that are trying to hide from reality and and live this this fake fallacy type alter ego life I mean how do these people end up ever getting ahead in life how do they handle a crisis when, when something really does come down and, and hit them in the face I mean well, well, they're, not, they're not prepared for that yeah well so uh, we're getting to witness how they handle it they double down it, um, that is it, it, uh, the deeper you get into this rut the more you insist it's a groove um, but uh, but how do they deal with it they don't they they don't deal with it very well. That's one of the ways in which irony plays in is that I'm, um, there's a term in philosophy that matters to me a lot. It's fallibilism. Fallibilism is a commitment to the assumption that we're just trying, that no one has a formula. That, that Sorry, we have formulas, but no formula is 100% guaranteed of success. Um, so uh, my mantra as a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I have to remain still more confident that it is a bet. That everything I do is a guess at what will work. So I'm a fallibilist, and I would argue that buttheads are fake infallibilists. They pretend that they have an infallible formula, and that is a dangerous way to live. But many of them, this is one of the sad things about uh, life, is that... The, is that um, we are all condemned to this. We are all sentenced to the same uh, consequence, no matter whether we're good people or bad. We all die. 
So there have been plenty of total buttheads um, who have died peacefully in bed uh, at, a, at a ripe old age um, with their family around them. I mean, it's not as though justice comes around. I mean, there's, there's this notion that crime doesn't pay and that karma will catch up with you. Um, when? Uh, there's an argument that you, you have to imagine an afterlife just to deal with all the unfairness of life. Um, mm. uh, that that, that if, if, if there was a God, heaven and hell would be the least he could do to right the wrongs here. Mm. An, I, th I find that an intriguing argument. So the answer is not every, sometimes crime pays if you let, if, if you can get away with it, or often crime pays if you can get away with it. So the question then becomes how do you keep it, for, uh, how do you make it so it costs? Um, and that's what we deal with in the law, and I'm trying to figure that out in psychology where there's all sorts of butthead behavior that's not illegal. Sure. Um, yeah, and so so the question is, how can we as a society um, become like neighborhood watches for for buttheadedness? As we're, we're, we're watching our local community, and above all, we're watching ourselves, um, and we're watching in every direction. We're not obsessed with where the buttheads came from last time. You know, uh, there were a bunch of communists leftist butt buttheads a while ago so now there's the people who are hyper vigilant in that direction without recognizing that no you can get it from any side they can come from any side um it's not again not what you sure. what you pretend to believe it's it's how you strut it um so yeah. that's been a big part of this work and i want i want to say one more thing about it which is i think we need outlets for our buttheadedness and for that i'm really interested in what i'll call optimal illusion safe escapism. Reality is way too much for humans to deal with directly all the time. We could not possibly be realistic. Escapism is inescapable. So the question is, how do you make escapism safe? And we got answers to it. Fiction is a perfect example. I watch TV actually a fair amount in the end, at the end of the day. Um, when I'm watching TV, I'm totally into it. I think I'm like that hero in the movie. Whatever. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I've got like these godlike qualities. I'm, I'm I'm powerful, I'm virtuous, you know, I'm James Bond, whatever like that. And I totally believe it, though of course I know it's not true. I mean, you know, you turn off the TV and I'm back to normal life. So for me, it's not how far out you go, but whether you come back to reality. Mm. I've been to Trump rallies. They're exactly like um, heavy metal concerts. And yeah. people, it's cosplay. People get. I went to one in Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, people get all dressed up. They go in. They're having a festival. They're laughing at all the fools outside them, just like at a metal concert. Uh, they're they're singing along with the lyrics. They're not actually paying attention to what the lyrics mean. They just sound hella bravado. So they they like them. The only difference between a heavy metal concert and a Trump rally is at the end of the heavy metal concert, people find their cars and go back to reality. And at a Trump rally, they 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 go away saying, um, my you know, this fantasy was more real than reality. And I would say that same thing about a, 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 a Hitler rally or a Stalin rally. Again, it's not about what the claim is. It's about whether you... For me, it's basically this. We all need our flights of fancy, but we have to take them with a return ticket to reality, secure in our hard pockets. We have to come back. Yeah, but you, you, you're, you're, you're throwing... Between, you're th you know... But we all do need those fantasies. Yes, but you're throwing you're throwing the the Trump people under the bus for going to the rally. But what about the people that rallied for Biden and uh, the the families that are that are stuck no, in I, Afghanistan? No, I, I, no, I'm not to, to, to say throwing them under the bus makes it sound like I, it's a moral violation. No, I just I made perfectly clear what I'm talking about here, which is if the, if the if the you can always say, well, what about them? And I will answer that directly. No, the people who go to a Biden rally do not come away thinking, I mean, most of them don't. I know, you know, I, I, I live in Berkeley, California. I know all sorts of leftists. I've lived with leftists all my life. And I know that there are plenty of jerks among them, um, you know, total, total buttheads. But what I'm talking about, the distinction I'm making isn't about what someone claims to believe. It's about whether people go back to reality afterwards. People are, people are going to reality so now, aren't they? I'm perfectly fine to engage in any of that stuff. I think that a Trump rally would be perfectly fine. No different from all sorts of ways that people get their yayas out. They go to mega churches and think they're wonderful and, and God's chosen. And uh, But the, the, the question for me is what you do afterwards. Whether you afterwards, you get back to reality and recognize that it was a fantasy, 
or whether you um, go out there and pretend that you now have a bigger reality than reality. Yeah, than, I, I, I got to tell you, Jeremy. Here's why. Jer I got to tell because you, I think there's a lot of people right question, now. The only issue, the only rule in life is adapt to reality or die. Right. I think there's a lot of people right now, Jeremy, wishing... Keep on, uh, returning to reality. I think there's a lot of people right now, Jeremy, that, that voted for Biden that, that wish they were at the Trump rally uh, at the concert at this very moment in time. I have to tell what you. What so, I think there's a lot of people that voted for Biden that wish they could escape their reality and go back to that uh, heavy metal concert. Uh, that's fine. You and I, I, it sounds like we probably are on, uh, we have uh, different approaches to this, but um, uh, that's that's totally fine. That's that's your opinion about it. I happen to know a bunch of Biden supporters and know none of us would like to go to a Trump rally, which is what you said first. Um, would you like uh, to go to uh, Afghanistan? We, 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 we think he was a disaster. Would you like um, to go to and, Afghanistan, and Jeremy? That's all. Jeremy, would you like and to go to Afghanistan today? Because reality, it doesn't matter. All it was was trumped up Trump cards. Hey, would you like to be in Afghanistan today? You know, you could ask all these pointed questions you want. I hear what you're trying to do. You want to affirm your belief. No, I'm asking you, you your right opinion. cherry-picking a fact here and there. That's not interesting to me. I'm paying attention to a broader question than that. Would you like to be among the Uyghurs now? No. Would you like to be among the people dying in hospitals from COVID? No. I mean, obvious. So what's your rhetorical question about, really? My question is just about your 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 you come onto this you come you came onto my podcast you, 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 you came you came you came onto this sir you came onto my podcast and you started getting political so I'm asking you the other side of it the other side and of you it, don't you like the questions a more clear about what you mean by the other side of it well you're throwing out Trump and and the Trump bots so, so I think what you're accusing me of is a bias. That I have a bias. Well, that, that you I'm have an agenda for sure. One side of this—that's what you're saying. I think you I have an agenda. I have in public policy. I pay attention to how policy gets made. I also know that it's a sausage factory. That is, it's very ugly how policy is made. So you know, Trump declares that we have to get out by May from Afghanistan. It goes back. Sir, I, I, we'd like I, to think I, that we'd like to think that our politicians could make perfect decisions because the consequences are so high. But actually, no one can we're, make we're, perfect we're, decisions. That's the point about The point is, is that, yeah, that we don't want to talk about politics. Any slack for the incompetence with which he got out of Afghanistan. But what I do notice is that we don't cut him slack, whereas Trump supporters cut him all the slack okay. in the world. And Let, why? Because, because they're Trump wannabes. Right. Wouldn't let's want let, to play uh, all right. fake Trump all right. cards all the time. Listen, that be, listen. And that would be true once again if he pandered to the left the way he panders to the right. Totally the sure. same thing. Sure. It's about assholes. Let, it's not about. It's not about. Um, and about and policy. they're and they're everywhere and they're on both sides and and it's. Yeah, it's but to say that it's all equal would be absurd. It's just so just to be clear. Oh, about it's that, absolutely. Yes, they're everywhere. We're all humans, and I just gave reasons why humans. Absolutely. Are a, yeah. You can't just okay. say but you can't just time, say it's on one side. That doesn't mean that it's even. Oh, it absolutely so example, is even. I mean, so just imagine. How you can you come on here and say over that? In Russia, and someone there was saying, uh, "Yeah, but there's jerks on all sides, so therefore." Sure. We don't need to pay attention to the jerks on our side because you guys have jerks too. No, you know, the, you're, who said you know, that? Everybody's human. I accept that. We're yeah. all making mistakes. We're all trying, and we're all engaging in some kind of, um, I'd say, delusions of grandeur. And I'm arguing we should have benign delusions of grandeur, not malignant ones. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Yeah. But but. All right. But so hey, I'm listen. Not we're I'm not satisfied. Yeah. 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 Well, we all do it, and therefore there's resolution to it. It's the same thing as I know you are, but what am I? I'm much more interested in people who are actually interested in looking at the ways in which they can learn from their own mistakes. Yeah, two wrongs don't make a right, and you can learn from your own mistakes and learn from others' mistakes as well. Absolutely. Um, yes. So, 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 where can people find your uh, studies on, on all this type of stuff? You mentioned your podcast. Where else can they find this online? So, there's a um, there's uh, the the main podcast I'd recommend if people are interested in this question, like if you're if you dealing with a bad boss or a bad ex or any or or interested in the political implications, whatever. What's up with a holes? Is my podcast. It's, it's short, accessible, it's basically a pod class. It's me reading this whole book which deals with the whole question, how do you diagnose, uh, treat, and prevent buttheadedness? Mm -hmm. um, and so, they, so you, if you just look that up online, but also 
if you're interested in the more broad stuff, just look. I, there's way too much of me on Google. If it's Google, my name, Jeremy Sherman. And also, um, if you go to my webpage, jeremysherman.com, you'll find plenty of stuff. And it's, I, it, like I say, I try to make it all accessible, intuitive, applicable in your everyday life. It's, it's, it's like that. And people that voted for Trump are allowed to read this as well, just to be clear. I make very, I make, I, I savage leftist equivalents. Mm. See, I, I think that it is, I think that it is a mistake to get distracted by the claims and the pandering. Whether mm. you do it for the left or the right, there are things in common among all buttheads. So I savage my new age leftist butthead friends who mm. pretend they know it all and have found the formula and are woke. I have a whole lot of trouble with wokeness. I think that the, the, the wokest movement we've got going right now, and I worry about it, is the Trump movement. It's totally a woke movement. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found kind of stuff. Um, but, but one way or another, I think that the, the, the beliefs that someone claims are not the point. I think that it's a formula that anybody could apply to any beliefs. It's a generic formula. Sure. And therefore, yes, they would find, I mean, they might be offended because they don't, uh, they don't want anyone to disparage their movement. They, they might be offended by that. I deal with that in the, within the first four pages of the book. But if you're interested in buttheads in general, yes, you'll find it in there and you'll find plenty of fodder for, uh, right-wing anger at leftist buttheads because there are a lot of leftist buttheads. Mm. I do not deny it. I'm interested in the, the, the generic. <laughs> yes, yes. My final question for you is, um, let's circle back to where we started. Last question. Uh, if your father you know, was watching you today, what, what would be the uh, thing he's most proud of with everything that you've done since his passing? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think he'd like the irony in the work and also the assiduousness, which is just a doggedness. My happiness comes from having work for which I have infinite patience. And I think that was his nature too, and he would say that that was quite resonant with him. Mm. And at the same time, he gave us enough freedom that I think he'd be okay with a variety of things I could have done. So I didn't end up, he, he succeeded in me not having to follow in his footsteps. Yes. So that, yeah, that, was, that, was a, that was a gift to me. It's a gift to your kids when you let them have their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, listen, uh, appreciate your time today. We will link you up in the show notes. Check them out. We've linked them in the show notes. Uh, we'll link your website up. And anyone that wants to find you, they can find you through the website. That's great, and it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank like, you. Likewise. All right.